Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Matthew 7, we're uh, back here after several weeks away from Matthew. Going to be here for a while now. This morning, we're looking at this idea of building relationships with mercy and love. Building relationships with mercy and love. Jesus says, Matthew 7, still in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This morning, as we walk through this passage, we'll see this key idea that our Father's love motivates us to love others. Our Father's love motivates us to love others. One fun thing about moving to a new place is, I don't know, finding new things, new places, and, and new restaurants. And I'd had uh, an opportunity with with uh, a guy or two who'd said, hey, you know, let's run to the early bird diner. And so I thought, hey, that'd be a fun experience for my family. And so this has been a few months ago, I don't know, within a month or two of moving here. And uh, <clears throat> we walked in there. And one thing you learn about walking in there with a family is that the space is really tight. So you walk in there with one other guy and you sit down in the booth and you feel pretty good about life. You walk in there with three kids and suddenly you realize this is not going to be the experience that I anticipated. So we walk in, sit down, and on this particular day, and this isn't uh, too uncommon, my youngest two want to sit with me, which, you know, is a blessing. I'm, I'm thankful that they want to sit with me. On the other hand, I'm in a booth, and, and for, uh, for our son, a booth is like a runway. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just a place to, to, to move back and forth, back and forth, but there's no place to move. So I've got uh, one on this side and one on this side, and I'm, and I'm kind of sitting like this and eating the whole time. And frankly, it, you know, it's like eating in a telephone booth. You know, there's just, there's just no, no place to move, no wiggle room. And I mean, I was like, okay, I, I, I'm ready. I'm ready to be done. It was not, you know, kind of your relaxing, laid back. Hey, we didn't have to fix a meal. Like, we, I was ready to be done with this because it was just so cramped. And the truth is, that's the way that Jesus describes a little bit of what it's like for a Christian to to walk the road in this life that leads to life. It's uncomfortable, it's narrow, it's cramped. And I want you to remember this because we're going to come back to it at the very end. And he kind of walks through several pieces of teaching here that lead us there. But the first thing that he teaches us is the importance of showing mercy in our relationships in verses 1 to 6. 
Now, verse 1 Maybe one of the most quoted and often misapplied verses in the entire Bible. Judge not that you be not judged. So there's a very clear application here. Don't be judgmental or don't look down on others. Don't be censorious in kind of the way you relate to other people. But what's at stake here is our attitude, not so much the truth of God's word. And we know this in part because the Sermon on the Mount over and over tells us to exercise discernment. So, for instance, in a few verses later, we'll see, he says, don't, uh, don't throw your pearls before pigs or, or don't give to dogs what is holy. But Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to make it clear that confronting sin is an important part of what it means to be a Christian. So what's he getting at here when he says, don't judge? What Jesus is doing here is he's confronting our hearts of superiority. He's confronting the tendency in us to look down on others or think maybe they're less than us, less than us individually or us as a group. He's pleading with us to be generous and merciful in the way that we view the sins of others and the faults of others. And he gives us a few reasons for this. And the first reason is this, because you will be judged. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Well, there's a, a practical human ram, ramification here, and that is judgmental people tend to be kind of judged by others because they're judgmental. But also, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus makes the full implications of this very clear. Verses 23 to 5, he's, he's telling the story of the unforgiving servant. The servant comes before a king, and, they, and he says, he begs the king, would you, would you forgive my debt? And this man has a 10,000 talent debt. It's, it's the equivalent of, of 200,000 years of debt. He cannot pay it off in 10 lifetimes. He cannot pay this debt off. And he comes and he, he begs him to forgive the debt. And the, the king, being a gracious person, says, okay, fine, I'll forgive the debt. But this same servant goes to someone else. And this person owes him a few days of, of, of worth of, of money, 100 days of labor. And this man begs to be forgiven of his debt, and this unforgiving servant won't forgive him. The king hears about it. He brings the servant back in, and he says, you despicable man, I forgave you this infinite debt, and you couldn't forgive this guy a few months of debt. And then he casts him out. And the point of the story is, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, the stakes here in forgiveness, grace, and mercy are really, really high. In other words, if there's an unwillingness in our heart to forgive someone else, at stake is God's forgiveness of us. You see, our tendency to judge others so harshly demonstrates that we don't understand the judgment that we deserve. Our failure to forgive others demonstrates we don't understand what God's forgiveness of us cost him. We're going to be judged, but also he says that, remember, you're your own worst problem. Jesus is a great storyteller. We see that uh, throughout his life, and he comes up here with, with a brilliant way to illustrate his point. He tells us a story of a, of a man walking around and, and looking uh, for, for specks of dust in someone else's eye. And he says, but meanwhile, you got this big old plank sticking out the front of your eye. And, and what sense does it make for you to have this big old log sticking out of your eye while you're going around and speck hunting in someone else's eye? Well, let's get real for a minute here. The point of this passage is not that some of us have logs and some of us have specks. The point is that we've all got a log. I mean, some of us have multiple logs sticking out of our eye. And 
And if you've ever had a piece of anything, an eyelash, a speck, anything fly into your eye, you know how important verse 5 is. You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the question is, if you have something in your eye, does it need to come out? Absolutely. I mean, if you've ever had anything stuck in your eye, you know how important it is to be able to get it out. Have you ever had that, like, can you help me see what's in my eye? Have you had that experience? But it's something very delicate, something very gentle, something that, that requires great care to do. And if someone's got a big old two-by-four sticking out their eye, they're not the person to help you with this problem. You see, we all need the specks taken out, but, but the problem is we've all also got logs sticking out of our own eyes. And the problem with us, maybe individually is, and also as a culture, is that we're professional speck hunters. We're, we're really good at spotting, spotting the dust, the, the grain in someone's eye. I mean, the truth, and Jesus wouldn't teach this if this weren't true, is that every culture loves to hunt specks. But there are times, I suspect, when we've got the spiritual gift of speck hunting. Maybe we've been blessed with an added measure of this. I mean, brothers and sisters, how can a culture of grace and mercy flourish when we're fixated on specks? I mean, if we're hunting dust. But I mean, not only are we speck hunters, we're speck complainers. And we'll point it out loudly. Look at the dust in that person's eye. I mean, do we have dust issues? Yeah. There, there, there are specks everywhere. But the problem is often we're blind to the log sticking out of our own eye. I mean, let's do this. Let's commit to log hunting and, and, and forgive, forget the speck hunting. You see, what happens is when we get a right perspective on our sin on our judgmentalism, on our failure to forgive others, suddenly that speck doesn't feel quite so important. Suddenly that thing in your eye that's driving me nuts, I can live with that. Because I got a stinking log sticking out of my eye. I mean, it's hard for me to be worried about the speck of dust in your eye when I recognize I've got a beam of wood sticking out the front of my face. Well, doing this helps us be gentle with others. Because when we are hard on ourselves, we recognize the infinite offense that we've committed against God. The fact that our, our sin deserves eternal judgment. The fact that God could snap his fingers and rightfully send us to hell were it not for Jesus. The fact that all this is true suddenly makes us a little more gentle with that speck. With that piece of dust in someone else's eye. And this is what Galatians 6 tells us. If anyone is caught in a transgression, okay, that's, that's a speck, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We can't be gentle with others until we recognize how gentle God has been with us. We, we, we can't be gracious toward others until we recognize how gracious God has been toward us. We have this giant view of your problems and tend to be very easy on ourselves. And Jesus says, friends, like the, the key to a good relationship with God and others is the exact opposite. It's recognizing the log in our own eye. I mean, do you know it's not Christ-like to complain? Numbers chapter 11, the children of Israel, they, honestly, they're going through a tough time. I mean, they're 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. They have no home. They're nomads. And, and they have to eat the same thing every day, manna every day. 
And as a special treat, God sends them some quail. But by this time, they're sick of the same thing over and over again, and, and, and they begin to grumble and complain. And sometime, if you wonder how God feels about our complaining, just go read Numbers chapter 11, because God sent fire to the camp and, and judged them for their complaining. Or consider these verses from the New Testament, Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. James 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. Don't grumble as the Israelites did and were destroyed. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. These aren't just verses for our kids. They're for mom and dad. Grandma, grandpa. They're, they're for all of us. So my encouragement is this. Jesus says, I mean, you're good at hunting specks of dust, but why don't, why don't we commit to like log whittling? Why don't we commit to getting real before God and each other? And, and, and the way this works, when you build cultures of grace, transparency, vulnerability, when people can be real before God and others about their sin, you know what happens? The specks take care of themselves. Because we admit we need help. Like, look, i got something in my eye. Can you help me? But if you come to me pounding your finger in my chest, am I going to hear a word you say? No, I'm going to be protecting myself. I'm going to be holding you at arm's length. The key to these kind of loving, vulnerable relationships is people who are real good at whittling the logs away in their own eye. And then we can help each other, as Jesus says in verse 5, get the speck of dust out of someone else's eye. Well, it also adds a third idea here, and he says, show mercy because some people don't listen. Now, some of you, all God's people said amen, right? I mean, if you've got, you got kids, you know this is true. Now, we got people here, and some of you are dog people, some of you are cat people, and some of you are none, you know, neither of the above. Well, we live in a culture where dogs are man's best friend, but in this culture, it didn't work quite that way. The, the, the dogs that they knew were wild dogs. They were kind of vicious, and they were viewed as unclean animals. They're not beloved household pets that ride around in strollers with sweaters on. It's just a very different culture. And then he also says pigs. Well, pigs, of course, are unclean animals in Jewish culture. But pigs aren't just unclean. They can also be incredibly vicious. In October of 2012, uh, there was a man in Oregon who'd gone out to feed his pigs. And, and later, his, he hadn't returned. His, his family went looking for him. And all they found left at seven pigs were uh, some dentures and a few body parts. He had somehow gotten caught in, in with the pigs, and the pigs literally just consumed him there are people that are like this too aren't there that will consume you and jesus it, i love this you know it's like we we tend to kind of run from one extreme to the other and he kind of says you know don't swing the pendulum too far the other way in other words exercise some discernment there are two parallel ideas don't give dogs what is holy and don't give pearls to pigs well, what is this pearl what is this holy thing well he doesn't come out and say it here but we think it's likely that what he's talking about is the gospel itself, the kingdom of heaven, because a few chapters later in Matthew 13, he will call the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's like a pearl. He compares it to this. But Jesus is saying in his own words what Proverbs 9 verse 8 says. Do not rebuke a scoffer or he'll hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. He said, 
learn to know the difference. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says something similar. He's talking to his disciples, and he's saying, go out, share the gospel, share this good news. And he sends them out into villages and towns and houses. But he says there, if they will not receive you or listen to your words, what do you do? Shake off the dust of your feet and leave. Like, get out of there. They aren't worth your time. In other words, when it comes to words of wisdom or to the gospel itself, what happens is our responsibility is to preach the word to anyone and everyone But there are times when discernment tells us, you're just wasting your breath. Like, just shut up and leave. I mean, one consequence is that you might be potentially hardening that person to someone else who could reach that person. We're not going to dwell here too long, but I imagine we all know someone like this, don't we? We all have someone, maybe a family member or a friend, who's rejecting good input, maybe even rejecting Jesus himself. So it's difficult because our responsibility, it's clear, is to tell this person that they're a sinner and that Jesus died for them. But Jesus also says sometimes that's not the best thing you can do for that person. Sometimes the best thing you can do for that person is give them some space. Give space to that person so God's spirit can operate on that person in a way that, that we can't. And our problem is like, you know, I've got such good discernment, I think I'm the Holy Spirit. I, th- I think I know what's best for you. But what Jesus says is, like, sometimes you don't. Sometimes give space for the Spirit of God to operate in a way that you can't see. And this is hard, especially with those that we love the most, isn't it? Like, like if, if you're a parent, you got kids, especially if they're adult kids, and they're, and they're making stupid choices, it's hard to give them their space. It's hard to keep that mouth shut. But in those moments, what we do is we, we, we trust them to the care of a God who is sovereign. A God who cares for them in ways that we could never care for them. A God who is loving and good and kind. And we trust that he is working for good even when we can't see it. So God says, be careful, show mercy. But secondly, he says, remember your father. You know, children have the gift of persistence. I mean, in other words, like, they're kind of unashamed to ask for the same thing over and over and over and over again. And part of its learning stage is, you know, if you've got a two-year-old, firsthand, uh, they'll ask for the same thing until you like, get the exact thing that they're requesting, or, or you at least acknowledge exactly the opposite, like that will not work. If it's something small, it's worth asking. So uh, for us in our car, we, we always carry a, a pack of gum. It's like Mentos gum, so it's in a little canister, and you can't open that thing silently. You pop open the lid, it's like, and it rattles around in there. And the minute, I mean, there could be music blaring in the background, a conversation, anything going on in the back, that thing opens up. Dad, can I have a piece of gum? I mean, it does not matter what's going on in the back. Can I have a piece of gum? Now, imagine that, that someone asked me for a, a piece of gum, and I chucked in the back. I you know, thought I'd be clever, and, and, and I, I threw like, some pebbles into that can, and I threw one of those back, and you know, my kid broke their tooth. Like, would I ever do that? No, I mean, that, that's not how I would interact with with my kids, because I, I love my kids. And, and Jesus tells us the same thing here. God, God's not like that, but he's also really good at straight talk. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean, he points out something to us about ourselves. Part of the reason that we're really good at speck hunting is because we've got these sinful hearts. I mean, Romans 3 tells us that we're sinners by birth and by choice. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good. You see, our hearts are evil, 
But even evil-hearted people know the difference between giving a good thing to a child and giving an evil gift to a child. So the question is this, verse 11. If you, who have a sinful heart, will give good gifts to your children, how much more will your infinitely good Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? He's infinitely better, infinitely more gracious, infinitely more loving than the best human father that you could imagine. Now, this is a little bit difficult for some of us to grapple with because maybe our picture of our earthly dad isn't a good one. Maybe your dad was absent. Maybe he is or was frequently angry, even abusive. So it's difficult when we hear things like this in God's word. He says, view God like a father. And I get that. I get that that is a reality of life in a broken world. But this is where we need to get to know the character of our heavenly father. He's nothing like human fathers. Because even if you have the best dad in the world, and some of you do, Even that father falls short of the picture we see in God's word of our heavenly dad. When your dad hasn't been there for you, our heavenly father says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your dad is angry, impatient, hard to deal with. Our heavenly father is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Your dad's an awkward relationship that you feel like just doesn't get you or get how to relate to you. Psalm 103 tells us our Heavenly Father knows our frame. He knows the very stuff we're made of, and He remembers that we are dust. Your Father's abusive. Our Heavenly Father is the protector of the oppressed, the protector of the the fatherless, and He looks out for everyone under oppression. You see, the difficulty is this, that we often view God through a lens of our own making, what happens is we bring all the muck and mess of our life to us. It's like tel- taking a telescope, draping a tissue over the end, and trying to see the stars. Like, if, if there's any light at the end, you can't see clearly. And so we bring this, this muck, this mess, our experiences, our human relationships, sometimes our own sin, sometimes this, this, our hurts and insecurities and our fears, and we bring these things, and we're like, God, you just, you just aren't what I imagined you would be. And the problem is we need to clean off our lens. The problem isn't the character of our father. The problem is our lens. It's, 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 it's the way we're looking at him. We can't see his character clearly. And so life is this. It's this constant lens cleaning. It's leaning into the character of God as it's revealed in his word. God's word is like this, this infinitely good lens cleaner because we, we've got these pictures and, and these messages coming at us and they, and they bombard us. God's not good. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care. God doesn't know. If God knew, would he allow this? If God were good, would this happen? If God really loved you, would he treat you this way? And then we take the lens cleaner of God's word, and we see God is loving. God is good. God is infinitely caring. God is the heavenly father who always good gifts, gives good gifts to his children. The problem is, sometimes we're there and we're asking. We think we're asking for a fish. We think we're asking for something good. But we're, we're, asking, for the snake. we're asking for the snake. God's like, I'm not going to give you that. That's not good for you. Or we're there, and we've got this stone in our hands, and we're like, God, can I have this? And God's like, no, that's not bread. You don't need that. That's no good for you. Lean into the character of God as it's revealed in his word. 
See, the beauty of a father who never fails, will never abandon you, is powerful enough to protect you from anything. He's loving enough to send his own son to die in your place. A God who loves like that is a God worth asking. A God who loves like that is a God worth going to. A God who loves like that is a God worth praying to. The prodigal son pictures the the love of our father. You've got this, this kid, he's a rebellious, stupid, idiot teenager, and he grows up in this household. He gets to the point, he's like, Dad, I'm out of here. Give me everything you owe me. Now, he doesn't owe him anything, but, but the dad's gracious, and he gives him his inheritance, and so the, the, the son leaves. And he goes out, and he parties hard, and the party's fun. But as Moses learned, the pleasures of sin, they're just for a season. They're, they're temporary. And he runs out of money. And he's there, and he's literally eating with pigs. So like some of the pigs eating the food that, that Jesus, of the, of, the, of the kind of animals Jesus is talking about here. He's there, and he like wakes up one day, and he says, I thought dad was an idiot. I'm the idiot. What am I doing here? I mean, the servants in my dad's house eat better than I'm eating right now. He's like, I'm going to go home and ask him, could, could I just live here as a servant? But the son's problem was he didn't understand the character of his father because he never even made it home. The picture in the story is he's on his way home, and the father is standing on the front porch looking. He's been watching the whole time, just waiting for him, not to welcome him with open arms, but the father runs to him, greets him, kisses him, and welcomes him home. The boy never makes it home because his loving father is pursuing him, seeking him, looking for him. That's the picture in God's word of our father, a father who's heavenly but who will embrace us, go to him, talk to him. You have a burden that's too much to bear, too big to carry. First Peter tells us, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God delights in answering the prayers of his children. So remember your father's love, but also show love to others. We call verse 12 the golden rule. Do to others what you want them to do to you. And Jesus says, this is a summary of the law and the prophets. In other words, if, if you want to take all of God's expectations and boil them down to one principle, it's this. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. Jesus teaches this same principle in Matthew chapter 22, and he does it in a, in a different way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. So you got two ways that you could summarize all these expectations from God. One is do to others what you wish they would do to you. And and another way is love God and and love your neighbor. Well, is this hard to understand? Nah. It's it's easy to understand. Is it hard to live out? Yeah. It's really hard to live. It's not hard to understand, but it's hard for us to live out. And this isn't referring simply to kind of deciding what you want and doing what you want to someone else. What what it means is treat others in the way that they would like to be treated. Uh, so like Gary Smalley you know, wrote a book on, on love languages. At, at some level, it's like learning someone else and loving them in a way that they actually feel loved. Like our tendency is to love people like we want to be loved, but that ain't the way everyone wants to be loved. I mean, 1 Peter 3 tells us this. Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, figure out where they're at and love them there in a way that they can receive your love. I mean, the role of a husband is to learn the needs of his wife, to serve those needs, and give himself to those needs in the same way that Christ gives himself for the church. It's this sacrificial, dying-to-ourselves love. 
But it's interesting here because if you look closely, what, what verse 12 says is whatever you wish, you know, do to others. But it's not immediately clear in English because we use you to talk about you individually and also you collectively. Jesus is talking to, 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 to the collective group here. He's, talk, he's, he's talking to y'all. And, and the language here is whatever y'all wish others would do to y'all, do to them. In other words, the character of, of a place, of a church, of a people should be shaped by this kind of love. In other words, rather than being speck hunters, we ought to be people who are kind and loving. People who are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, we need to be asking ourselves, what does our lived-out character teach other people about the character of our Savior? And then we move finally to the only way to find life. Jesus ends this long sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7, with, with four different pictures of choices, and we're just going to look at one of those here at the end. We imagine that we're standing at a, at a fork in the road, and we, and we look down one way, and there's just a very smooth, well-paved road with a nice shoulder, maybe even a bike path, you know, by it, and, and, and you can see, like, we can really cruise down that way, and then on the other, the, the other fork of the road, we look down, and it's, it's this very potholed, broken, very difficult, kind of overgrown path. But there's a catch. At the end of the very smooth path, path there's, a, there's a cliff at the end, and you plunge to your death. On the other path, it's very difficult, it's hilly, it's rocky, it's very difficult terrain, but there's life at the end of this path. Well, do you remember the story that we you know, looked at at the beginning? Sitting in the diner, you're very close, it's very uncomfortable, it's very crowded. Well, the difficulty with that is like, the options are comfortable either way, as in like, we could eat here or eat at home. Like, either, one's, either, one, either one works pretty well. But, but the picture here is this, that, that we're, we're here, we're in a coastal city, and there, there's, there's a tidal wave coming. And there are refugee buses leaving. They are overcrowded. We're breaking all kinds of traffic and seatbelt laws, packing people under these buses. There's not enough to eat. It's very uncomfortable. It stinks. There are too many people on there. But, but the question is, is not whether, hey, do I want to be uncomfortable or not? It's do I want to be destroyed or not? Like, the option isn't between comfort and discomfort. The option is between death and life. And Jesus says the way that leads to life is hot. It's overcrowded, but it's a way out. Well, if the journey were all there is, we'd be stupid to take the bus. I mean, if it's just like hopping on a bus with a bunch of people you don't know and riding around and like kind of stinking by the end of it, that sounds pretty terrible. But if it will save your life, that's a bus ride I'm taking. The point is what's on the other side. The point is what waits for us in eternity. Jesus told us what this path is like in Matthew 5. You're reviled, persecuted. People speak evil lies against you because you follow Jesus. Look, Jesus isn't telling us to embrace some sort of martyr syndrome, but he is saying there is a cost, an earthly cost, to following Christ. Now, that cost looks different for each one of us. But if life with Jesus looks just as comfortable as life without him, it's possible that we haven't understood the cost of discipleship. I mean, John Bunyan, in his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, calls this Vanity Fair. You're living life like it's good, but the truth is it's vanity. It's empty. It's going to be gone. But perhaps for you, this cost looks for you like 
getting a job that frees you up to worship with your church family and your family, even though it's not as lucrative as the alternative. Or maybe it means graciously, humbly, mercifully, lovingly holding the parts of God's word that are hard in our culture. Because there are some parts that are just awkward. But whatever it means for you individually in this life, it must mean this for all of us. The only way to life is turning from your sin and trusting Jesus. I mean, that's the bottom line here. It may involve praying a prayer, but praying, simply praying a prayer won't save you. Faith in Jesus is the only way to life. And so as we're here this morning, I just would like to say to you, if you've never truly understood what it means to trust Jesus, will you acknowledge your sin before him? Recognize the path is no fun, but at the end of it is life and eternal joy. Would you ask Jesus to save you? Let's take a minute as we close to respond to God's word in repentance and faith. How is God speaking to you this morning? I'll give you a minute to talk to God in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer.